Well, today I want to begin by admitting uh, to both my horror and my shame that for much of my growing up years, I was an extremely gullible little boy. I believed almost everything people told me, especially, especially when it came to Christmas. And so today I'm going to let you in on a little embarrassing truth about growing up. I'm going to bring that to a truth that is very important and why I'm, I'm going to try to lead up because I'm going to talk to the skeptic today. That's my objective. Um, over the years as I grew older, I realized I was easily misled. If something made me feel good or somebody that I loved told me something, I believed it. But over the years, I realized I, I have to believe something, not because of how it makes me feel, but because it's grounded in truth. And so my objective this morning is to reach the skeptic, the doubter, the people who fold their arms concerning issues of faith and say, show me. I'm not going to believe until you show me. And I know there's a lot of you in here, because Christmas always brings in people that have stayed away for a while. They come back because either they are agreeing to come because their grandma told them to come or their mom says, come on, honey, sit next to me at church, will you? Okay, okay. But they fold their arms and are like, all right, I've heard this a million times. And so I'm trying to reach you. I'm also convinced that some of the greatest skeptics are those who, when they were younger, were quick to believe and then they found themselves to be lied to. There are people who question everything because they don't want to be burned again. And that's what happened to me. So let me tell you my story, if you don't mind. I was born in 1966, the youngest child of six in a big Roman Catholic family, which means most of my childhood concerning Christmas memories took place in the 1970s, and I loved growing up in the 1970s in Cleveland, Ohio. There were always seemed to be massive snowstorms in the 70s. I don't know if you remember that, but in Cleveland, there was always massive amounts of snow starting in December. It felt like I lived in the North Pole, and it's a perfect backdrop for caroling, snowball fights, sledding hills, Christmas light shows. We had a local ice skating rink across the street from our house, and my sisters and I always built massive snow forts. So Christmas to me really was a winter wonderland. Our kitchen in December always smelled of cookies. My mom made chocolate chip cookies, snickerdoodles. She loved sugar cookies and she made them for us and also we brought a lot to neighbors. She's always making cookies. My dad had one of those big Magnavox, Magnavox stereo consoles that took up the whole living room. I don't know if you remember, you'd open it up, had massive speakers, you could put a, a stack of big records, and once one was done, it would click to the next one, and click to the next one, and my dad loved to sing. And so on his stack of records, he had Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole, Andy Williams, Frank Sinatra, Jose Feliciano, Johnny Mathis, and of course, Elvis Presley. And he sang it all the time. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'd say, Dad, quit singing. Hell, I'll be so blue, so you don't want to. <laughs> but one of my, so I'm letting you in on me and my brain, one of my biggest seasonal joys 
was watching all the Christmas shows that would play on the three major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, because there was no cable in the 70s. There was no Netflix, no VCRs, no CD or Blu-ray players, no streaming services. This is back in the ancient days. So we had local stations that you would tune into by moving the giant rabbit ears that were on top of the television set big rabbit ears, and you try to perfectly position it so you could tune your TV show in. My mom would buy a weekly TV guide, and my sisters and I would open it up, and we'd look for all of the Christmas shows. Charlie Brown, Frosty the Snowman, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then we'd mark them on the calendar, and we'd set our life to those shows. That's just how it was. On the night of a show... We'd put on our warmest pajamas, bring down our favorite blankets and pillows. My mom would make popcorn balls. They were, oh, they were so good. Then we would snuggle close like sardines on the carpet while we'd be drinking our hot chocolate watching all of these shows. And as the youngest kid, I was transfixed by them, lost in sheer wonder. I took in every line. I remember every song from those shows, and I believed every word of them. I did. I believed every word of them. There's one movie in particular that spoke to me the most, and its message connected with me because I'm a kind of person that wants logical reasons for things to believe in. And now before you laugh at this show, I'm going to show you what show it was. We all have to admit something in here. If we are honest, most of us are quick to believe things without even realizing why we believe them. We all tend to be a bit gullible. We're easily misled. We're given over to sentiment. If something makes me cry or feel good, we tend to believe it. And the key word is feel. If I warm, feel warm and accepted by a group, and I like that group, and I want that group to like me, I will tend to believe the things they believe not necessarily because they're true, but because I want that group to like me. That's what's happening all over our country. I want to feel. And if I feel, I'll believe. In the, in the show that really hooked my feelings was this show. It is called Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Here's why I liked it. Number one, the premise of the movie is the main character is voiced by Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire's voice is like talking to my favorite uncle. It's so warm, friendly, and trustworthy. So he was a mailman at the North Pole, and he knew everything there was ever to know about Santa. So kids around the world would mail him questions concerning Santa, and every, every answer he, ha he had sounded so believable. So this movie for me became the authoritative biographical source document concerning Santa Claus. It really did. It answered every question I secretly had. Where did Santa come from? Oh, he was an orphan child that went up on the Kringle's doorpost. Why was he called Claus? Why did he have a beard? Why did he wear a red suit? Why did he live way up in the North Pole? Why are there elves who make toys? Why did Santa climb down chimneys? Because of the Burgermeister Meister Burger. I believed all of it. I'm just telling you. Why does he laugh? Ho, 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 because the seals taught him how to laugh. How can reindeer fly? The winter warlock's magical feed corn. Of course. 
So as a little kid, I was enchanted, and I would say, of course, and I believe. I did have an older brother that tried to smash my belief in Santa, but he never watched the movie. He never watched it. So how could he know? That was my reasoning. But I was convinced Santa was real, and I believed in him for a very long time. I did. I think it was last year I quit believing. But a long time. A really long time. But as I grew into my teens, my belief in jolly old Saint Nick began to slowly erode. I began to realize I was lied to. I was hoodwinked. I started to calculate how long it would take just coming down our chimney and in my neighbor's chimney and in our neighborhood's chimney and in our state and in our country and man, our, the world, he, it was impossible for him to do that one night. And then I started thinking about the sleigh. I started thinking of the physics of a steel sleigh without wings being pulled by a ring. Like that, that wouldn't work. No way. So my belief turned into just thin vapors of nostalgia and sentiment. I realized it's time to grow up, and that meant start abandoning fantasy. It's not real. I didn't want to be easy prey anymore, so I grew cynical, skeptical. I needed to guard myself against my own gullibility, and I didn't believe things just because somebody told me anymore. I had to find out for myself. And so naturally, I began to wonder, was the story of Jesus real? Or was it a made-up story like Santa Claus? Was there any historical and evidential basis for believing, or was I buying into the story because I felt holy because I sang on Christmas Eve at Midnight Mass? Silent Night made me cry. So because Silent Night made me cry, and I was holding a candle while I was singing Silent Night, and I was with my brothers and sisters on a snowy evening, and I felt holy, it must be true, because I felt it. No, I didn't want to be caught up in the moment anymore. I wanted to know. So I had to go to a place where I could find answers, real answers, because I didn't want to be a gullible little boy anymore. So I went to the biographical source material for the person of Christ and began to read it. I read it with my own eyes. The Bible. Did you know, this is a very interesting fact, did you know that the Bible takes telling truth very seriously? Like the Bible's really serious about tell the truth. Jesus says this often, verily, verily, which means truthfully I'm telling you. It even makes some really clear statements about the reliability of words and the words that it says. Not only does it consistently say lying is a sin, thou shalt not bear false witness, but if it was bearing false witness about the coming of Christ, then it was condemning itself. Huh. Then I read this verse in 2 Peter. It became one of my favorite verses. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter who was an eyewitness to Christ, said this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were 
eyewitnesses, first-hand account of his majesty. I love this verse. It spoke to my logic and my reason. That means this book is not another creative claymation video. It is not another expertly designed cartoon lie. It is based on first-hand eyewitness accounts of real people who lived, breathed, and walked on this earth. So we can trust this book. It does not turn us into gullible little fools. So last week we answered the question of why purpose. Why would he come? Today I want to talk to the skeptic and answer the question, when? When did it happen? I don't want to talk about December 25th. I'm not going to get into that because there's a lot of issues on why, why not. I want to talk about the historical evidence of the coming of Jesus as a baby. Did this really happen? When did it happen? And there's a lot of questions concerning this when that we need to just look into. For instance, was it true and important for Jesus to be born of a virgin? And why? Did you know some Christians don't think it is anymore? I think it is. Why did he have to be Jewish? Why didn't he come in our time when we have YouTube, cable, instantaneous video? Why did he come in the ancient times when there was a manger and smelly animals involved? He could have been born with our hospital system where he didn't need to worry about infection and Mary's pain. Why didn't he come today? So to me, there are many questions for a skeptic, and I think we can find answers more than just warm sentiment, because if all we have is warm sentiment, there's no reason to believe. So I'm going to answer the question when by one verse. To me, this verse encapsulates the whole Bible, and out of that verse, I want to take some important facts. So go to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, and verse 4. Galatians 4, 4, and really 4, 4, and 5. And here's what it says. This answers the question of when. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, or born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoptions as sons, another way, is salvation, redemption, being bought back. So four big ideas. Fullness of time, what does that mean? Born of a woman, what does that mean and why is that important? Born under the law, what does that mean? And then finally, how is this for me? Because it says in verse 5, this was for me. Sure seemed like it happened a long time ago. How does this relate to me? Because that's really what we are always asking. Whenever we read scripture, we can say that's nice, but then we always ask, so what? And we'll get into the so what at the end. So what does it all mean, especially the phrase fullness of time? Fullness of time is a Greek phrase that's very unique. It has the idea of God's plan is reached full term. Like a baby in its mother's womb does at nine months, God's plan 
over thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history at the moment of Jesus' birth was full term. Came full term. It was the climax of all the events of the Jewish nation. And God orchestrated them so when Jesus did come, it would have the greatest effect on all of us, the world. I want you to look at this verse like this. This might be strange to you, but this is the way I think. I think in ideas and metaphors. I'm going to call this verse God's promise pie. pie promise pie. And by pie, it's the pie of salvation. It's the pie, if you eat it, you become an adopted son of God. Promise pie is the idea is that God, throughout the Old Testament's historical record, He has given us hints, and finely tuned promises concerning the coming of the Jewish king, concerning the coming of the lamb that is going to be slain. And when it is perfectly cooked, it is the fullness of time. Two things about the promise pie, first of all. Hebrews 6, 17-18 says that when God makes promises, he does not lie, because he cannot lie. So you could say this, all of his promises that he gave in the Old Testament will come true at the time they were meant to come true because God is always on time. Always on time. He's perfect. Second thing about this pie is like any good pie, these promises take time to mature and bake and bubble together into heat so that when the promised pie is fully cooked, it's aroma and its taste arouses the appetite of the person who's truly hungry. People who want to understand will stop and wonder what he did. And all the years of longing, they will realize, have been specifically fulfilled on the day he came. If I was to make you a pie, look at it like this. If I was to make you pie, I would never just serve you the ingredients uncooked. You don't put cold filling in a pan of raw dough and then just eat it. It will rot your stomach. It needs to cook in heat. A designated time of heat because that allows for all the ingredients to blend together so that when the timer goes off, the tantalizing dish is everything that I've wanted. This is exactly what happened Christmas morning. Thousands of years of promises came together at the fullness of time. I'd say even 4,000 some years of promises came together on one day so that when the angels came and they saw that Jesus in the manger with Mary and Joseph, they said, joy to the world. The Lord has come. This is an amazing thing. So let's talk about the ingredients that the pie is filled with. It's the most important thing. When you eat a pie, you eat the pie for the ingredients. The crust just contains what is the delectable dish. So here's what it says next. When the fullness of time come, then it says God sent forth his son born of a woman. So I'm going to say the ingredient is the seed of a woman, a son born of a woman. And it's very specific. Throughout the Bible, you'll read this phrase, the seed of the woman. Why? Why is that the filling? Well, I want to take you back to the very beginning just quickly in your mind. At the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were made perfectly. They were perfect. 
They were enjoying fellowship with God. They saw him face to face. And God said, if you want to have fellowship with me, just don't do this one thing. Don't do this one thing. Do not eat the fruit. And they disobeyed. They disobeyed. And because they disobeyed, sin entered the world and has ruined everything. God warned them, but they didn't listen. But instead of writing them off, God gave them a promise to right all the wrongs that they did. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 3. Very first book in the Bible. Chapter 3 is the chapter of what's called the fall. When they were tempted, they ate the fruit in the world incurred sin. But I want you to look at verse 15. Verse 15 is the first promise. It's the first promise of redemption. Scholars will call this the prophecy of salvation. First one. And listen to who it's written to. God is speaking to Eve. Eve is the one that first ate and then uh, got Adam to eat. But God is speaking to Eve, and here's what he says to her. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Actually, he's talking to Satan. I will put enmity, that means they're adversaries, there's hatred, there's going to be conflict forever between you and the woman, Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, meaning her offspring shall give you a fatal blow to the head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. You're going to somehow hurt him, but he's going to destroy you. It's the first prophecy. To sum it up, the woman's offspring or seed will render a fatal blow and crush the head of the devil, the tempter, the one who is ushered in sin and death. So what does that mean? Well, history rolled on. Thousands and thousands of years went by. And then another prophecy about a woman came into the book of Isaiah. Go in the middle of the Bible and go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. And this is where, really where you get the phrase, seed of the woman from. It was a prophecy given to the nation Israel when they were being threatened by an enemy. And they are wondering if God was going to rescue them. And so God gives them a promise of some future miraculous rescuing plan. And it's in Isaiah chapter 7. And I want to start in verse 11. And he's talking to the leader of Israel. And he says, ask a sign of the Lord. This is chapter 7 of Isaiah. Um, ask a sign of the Lord. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. So God's going to give you a sign even though you don't want to ask for one. He's going to give a sign of redemption. And here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. The virgin shall conceive. There's two interpretations on that. Could be a young maiden. That word virgin could mean in the Hebrew a young maiden. But also, it could mean a lady who never slept with a man. And then it says, shall conceive. How can that come true if she never laid with a man? 
I think you know the answer. We'll go to that in a second. But this is the prophecy a thousand years before Jesus ever arrived. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel means God is with us, or you could even say God arrived. God's answer is here. This is God's child. So then another thousand years went by, and we get to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And this is a story about a lady named Mary. And Mary was given a sign from an angel sent from heaven. This angel sent from heaven told her she was going to have a baby. And so we pick up the story in Luke 1, 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? How can I have a child since I am a virgin? Same word, same idea. So she's using the word virgin, the idea that I haven't slept with a man virginally. She's young. Some people think she might have been 12 or 13. But she also was a virgin. She was pure. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in other words... The way a normal child is born, it's the seed of a human male and the egg of a human female. This child is born from the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, and no male seed was involved. That's why it's called the seed of a woman. It's just Mary's human baby, and God conceived, caused her to conceive. Why? Well, this is the filling of the pie. Here's the reason why. It says in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 15, from Adam to us, sin has naturally been passed down through the seed of a man. So sin, like a virus, has infected all of us. And it's been passed on generationally. However, we need somebody to stop the sin, to pay for the sin that Adam started. So we needed a perfect sacrifice that had no sin. And in order to do that, God chose a woman to start a new race, a sinless race. That's why Jesus is the seed of a woman. He was not born with sin. He was not born soiled. In the Old Testament, if you're going to have a sacrifice for sin, it needed to be a lamb without blemish or defect. It needed to be innocent. It needed to be pure. If you want your sin paid for, you can't have another sinner dying a cross for you. You need somebody who's innocent, someone who's pure. You need someone who's born from on high. So this ingredient is our only salvation. The pure Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That's the filling of the pie. That's the package that needed to be delivered. So how was it delivered? Well, there's a very specific framework, and I'm going to call it the crust. The crust is designed to carry the ingredients or the package. And you could say the crust, in this case, in Galatians 4.4, includes the lineage and the coming of the sinless Son of God through the Jewish people. This is when God gets very specific. I mean, he gets really specific with a number of historical promises so people couldn't miss him. 
He wanted us to know what to look for. You could say it like this. Anyone who claimed to be, to be the Messiah without going through the specific promises cannot claim to be the Messiah because he doesn't have the proper pedigree. He doesn't have the right certification. He needed to be of the right lineage. So you could say a person just couldn't declare themselves to be chosen unless they fulfilled all of the promises God gave us because God never lies. So what are some of these promises? I'll go through them real quick. If you want, I've got a study guide you can follow later on because they're going to be in here more specifically. But here's some of them. Number one, he had to be a Jew. He had to be of Abraham's lineage. Abraham was a Hebrew and in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God gave a promise to, to Abraham that says, you're going to have as many descendants as the stars of the sky. One of your descendants is going to be a blessing to all people. To all people. So, if this person's the right person with the right pedigree, they had to be of Abraham's tribe, the Hebrews. Not only that, but it had to be of the right family of Jews, right tribe. In the book of Genesis chapter 19, it basically says, or 49, it says that the tribe of Judah is going to carry the scepter, going to carry the kingdom of God, going to be responsible for the rule. So not only was it from Abraham's people, but it had to be of Judah's tribe. Not only that, but it had to be from David's, be David's son. Specifically, it had to be linked right to King David. King David was so loyal to God, God gave him a promise called the Davidic Covenant. That means a promise to David. God said, David, since you've been so faithful to me, you are going to have your son sitting on my throne forever. Forever. So he had to be David's son. He also had to be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. Remember Moses is a prophet? Not only did he speak authoritative truth that people had to listen to, but it, he came with signs, miracles, and wonders. So a guy had to be able to speak authoritatively, but also had to do wonders. And then also, he had to be not just for the Jews, but also he had to be a light for the Gentiles. So the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants, most of these promises in the Old Testament are for. But then Isaiah comes in and says, but this blessing from Abraham's people, are also going to be for non-Jews. The name for a non-Jew is a Gentile. Most of us are Gentiles. I did a, actually I did my, you know when you look up Ancestry.com? Today a 4% Jewish, so I'm on this side. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Derek, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The crust had to have all five of these. So if you are going to be fulfilling the specific promises of God, you had to be underneath all five of these, which is the law. He came under the law. Not only was he under the law, but he fulfilled it perfectly. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He did every, he went to the Sabbath, synagogue on the Sabbath. He obeyed Sabbath law. And he was blameless. So when he died on the cross, he said, God, your will is finished. It's complete. He came under the law. That's what Galatians 4.4 4 said. So if anybody comes around and says, well, 
you know, Jesus isn't the only way. Well, show me somebody that met all this criteria and fulfilled the law perfectly. There's really nobody except for Jesus. Then you have one more thing that you need to do, and I want you to take a quick look at this because this is really important. You need to bake a pie. You don't just put the pie together, but you have to bake it. And baking takes some time and some heat applied, pressure, to kind of put the whole thing together so it tastes just right. So just like a pie, the promises of God needed time to prove themselves. The first thing that happened is you needed time for the law to show us that we're all flawed. Here's what I mean. When the law was first given on Mount Sinai, Moses came to the people with the law. You know what they said in Exodus 19? We will do all of it. We will obey all of it. They said it three times. Three times. Every single generation failed. Every single one. They said we can do it after every generation. No, you can't. No, you can't. So Galatians comes in and says, you know what the law was really meant to do? The law was meant to lead us to Christ like a, like a person leading a little kid to school because he's the one that's the answer. He's the one that can do it. You can't. And it takes some time for you to realize that because we're really cocky. Human beings really are arrogant. We really think we can do it. And so sometimes we need to fail. It took the Jews thousands of years to fail. And then needs time for religion to start showing itself as being just a man-made invention. Judaism started becoming rules taught by men. And all of these guys started coming on the scene like Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and they became legalists and religion became this crusty, deadening thing. It took time to show that took time for people underneath that kind of leadership to say, I, I want something different. I want, I want the spirit of the law, not the law. And Jesus was the embodiment of the spirit of the law. Galatians 4 basically says, you know when it's not true, it becomes things about dates and moons and traditions and the way you dress rather than a relationship with the living God. But it takes time to see that. And then the final thing that God let happen is I would say he let the world itself orchestrate to when Jesus arrived, it was perfect. Before Jesus came, Alexander the Great conquered the world and took the Greek language to every square inch so that the Old Testament was interpreted into the Septuagint, which became a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they had it at the time that Jesus came. Rome came to build roads all around the world because every road led to Rome. But you know, almost every road went through a city that was right in the center of Africa and Asia and Europe, and that city was called Jerusalem, right in the center. And the roads connected it to the world. But there also was this phenomenon in the Jewish community. The Jews were starting to be um, by Rome, they were persecuted, so they started spreading out and synagogues started going all over the known world. They went to Europe, they went to Asia. And why is that important? Because Judaism 
are the roots of Christianity. So when Paul had the gospel, he would first go to the synagogue where they would disseminate the whole scriptures. In Colossians it said, the whole world now hears the gospel. The synagogue was like the dry tender for the gospel to light the match, and it set the world on fire. It took time. So when Jesus came to the world, everything was set up so people were prepared for his appearance. After his birth, life, and death, and crucifixion, the world was prepared in all its particulars. It was time. And in truth, this whole grand story, this promised pie, wasn't just for that time. It was meant for you. Listen to this. This is an amazing verse. This is 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. It says, concerning this salvation, this promised pie, this pie that if I eat it and I believe it, I become an adopted child of the living God. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the subsequent glories. That first half is saying, scriptures that Moses wrote in Genesis, Isaiah wrote about the virgin who gives birth, Jeremiah wrote, they didn't really know why they were writing it, but God led them to write it. And they tried to search the meaning, but it wasn't the fullness of time for them yet to understand it. Then the second half says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were putting the ingredients in the crust together, so then when it cooked fully, the pies meant for you. To eat it. To believe it. To give your life to it. It's not just a story. It's salvation. It's interesting as thinking through this, in the same way that the heat happened to Israel where it needed time for the law, needed time for religion, and needed time for the events to work out. I think God does that in every single individual's life. Did it for me. When we're young, we're really pretty arrogant. Specifically, when we're around 16 to 25, we think we can do it on our own. We can save ourselves. But then we wake up, we look in the mirror one day, and we're like, I'm making a mess of my life. I'm kind of a failure. I'm not that good. Some of us have addictions. Some of us lust like crazy. Some of us get in relationships and maybe we get divorced right away and we realize I'm broken. Like Israel, the law reveals your flaws. And over time, as this pie is cooking in your own heart, you realize, I'm flawed. And then we try things to take away that guilt. We try religion. Sometimes we try to dress up and look good on Sunday. Sometimes we try to join self-help groups or whatever, and we realize they're not working. I still have this emptiness inside. I still have this loneliness. Religion doesn't work. It's crusty. It's dead. I need something. I need life. I need life. Then you look at your own life. And you realize God has set this up. It's kind of like there's a verse in Paul. Jesus says to Paul, Paul, why do you keep kicking against the pricks as if he's 
pricking Paul to belief. He's using the events of a person's life to bring them to the end of themselves and saying, I have nowhere to go. C.S. Lewis said, the day that I was saved, I was like a cat that was pushed in the corner, and I was the most reluctant convert on earth. But it's the only thing you can do. I think that pie and the heat of that pie is different for each person. And some of you realize you need him. You need to believe. The wonder of this story, I wanna, want you to think like this. The wonder of the story is that it really is not over. It has just begun. It only gets better and better and better. Have you ever noticed when, when it comes to human stories, they're good for a while, but then they're not good anymore? Like you could take your favorite TV show, maybe a couple, two, three, four, five years, but then they, they're not good anymore. Or you take Lord of the Rings, three good books, but then they try. There's no, it's just, it's not satisfying after a while. Some of you binge on some Netflix show, and then it's just not good anymore. Remember, I felt that way about The Office. I like The Office. I know as a pastor, I'm not supposed to like The Office. But about the fifth year, it's just not good anymore. The thing about this story, it gets better. I like to look at it like this. This life is like the trailer to the movie. We're not in the movie yet. We're buying the ticket by salvation for the movie. And the movie's eternity. This is only the trailer. It gets better and better and better. Yesterday I did a funeral. This is uh, Jackie Denzel's brother-in-law. She's had a tough time the last couple days, last couple months. And the uh, funeral I did was for a man named John Norton, just a, just a kind guy. What was sad about this funeral is I just did his wife's funeral in January two years ago. Same place. The funeral was at the same place. Same people. It was like deja vu. Really, it felt like I blinked my eye after I did her funeral. I opened him up. I'm doing his funeral. That's how fast those two years went. And in those two years, he, he, was, he just, like, like a mist, says in James that appears for a little while, just vanishes away. If the only stories we hook onto are stupid stories like Santa Claus, Lord of the Rings, other fantasies, and that's what we imbibe our whole life on, what do we have when our myths, our real, our story ends? Or do we hook onto a story that is, has been proven over 6,000 years of history it's about the greatest person who ever came to this earth. The one who died for me. Who rose again from the grave and promises. Here's his promise. Don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again so you can be with me where I am. And one of the apostles said, I don't know where you are. And he said, 
I don't know how to get to where you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Either that is the biggest lie that has ever been propagated, or it's the greatest truth that's ever been told. The decision is up to you. If you think it's a lie, why do you play the game called Christianity? It's kind of a joke. But if it's the truth, why do you play games with Christianity? Why don't you live it fully?